electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and it's starting to feel like Friday all over again. Losses accelerating throughout the session here. The S&P, the worst performer today. Bond yields dropping sharply and oil absolutely tanking as COVID spreads in China. We'll look at the early fallout and the ripple effect from the surging U.S. dollar. Plus, all of this is happening in the midst of the fastest Fed tightening cycle in 40 years. Will they really be forced to back off their plans as markets unravel? Or is this market action actually helping the Fed achieve its goals? Plus, we have tons of earnings this week, a slew of big tech reports, and some key industrials and multinationals that will be bellwethers for this market. Names like GE, 3M, and Whirlpool will get you set up for that in earnings exchange. But first... Let's get the latest numbers. Actually, I don't know, Dom, it's coming back a little it bit. It is, because I was going to say, Kelly, we're well off the session lows right now. In fact, we might have come close to flat on the NASDAQ composite trade. It was a real underperformer. So we're only down about 25 points right now, 12,814 the last trade there. It's only off about one quarter of 1%. We were almost flat in just like the last 10 or 15 minutes or so. The S&P 500, 42.27 the last trade there, still down about 1%. And the Dow Industrial is down three quarters of 1%, down 255 points, but still well off the session lows. One of the best performing, if not the best performing sector so far, the only one in the green at one point today was communication services. And that's thanks and maybe no small part to the kind of buy the bounce a little bit, uh, buy the dip here for some of these communication services stocks. But Twitter is one of them, up five and a half percent. Now, we've got fresh headlines from the folks over at The Wall Street Journal in just the last 10 minutes here saying that according to sources familiar, you could see about a $44 billion agreement between Twitter and Elon Musk to take that company private. Also, that a deal could be announced by just after the closing bell if not before. So again, all those headlines coming from source reporting over at the Wall Street Journal. And by the way, if you look at Twitter right now, up five and a half percent, remember the number you want to watch at least for right now is 5420. That was what Elon Musk said he was going to take over the company at. And remember, we're up about 66 percent off the lows that we've seen over the last couple of months. So keep an eye on Twitter. And then if you want to take a look at just some of the context around how steep of the, the, the losses have been, if you look at the Spider S&P 500, the Invesco QQQ Trust, which tracks the NASDAQ 100, and the iShares Russell 2000 ETF, that orange line, the one for the NASDAQ 100, we are now down roughly 20% off the highs. By the way, for the small caps, Kelly, we're down 22%, and for the S&P 500, off about 12%. So that's kind of where we stand right now. Is that drop enough? Is that drawdown enough? It has been in the past to draw out some of those dip buyers. We'll see if that stays true here. Again, off-session lows. We'll see if it stays that way into the closing bell, Kel. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We'll continue to follow the Twitter headlines all hour long. Meantime, April was supposedly the best month for markets, but it's bucking its usual seasonal trend, and we have all aspects of this move lower. Paul Hickey is co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group. He's got an eye on some big earnings heading our way this week. David Harden is CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments. He is watching the surging U.S. dollar. And Brian Sullivan has the latest on the China COVID lockdown 
lockdowns that are sparking this deep sell-off in oil. Paul, let's start with you. And what are the market internals and the earnings this week telling you? Hey, so good afternoon, Kelly. Uh, you know, so this week is going to be a big one for earnings. You know, earnings season starts in early April, but uh, what we've seen, you know, we haven't really reached the peak. And these next two weeks are, you know, big in, in terms of quantity and uh, market cap. This week alone, you have um, you have Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and, and Alphabet all reporting. Uh, they've only reported in the same week seven other times going back over the last 10 years. Wow. And when you get all those big companies together, uh, sometimes, you know, something's bound to go wrong. Uh, so what you've seen in, in historically leading into these uh, weeks where all four of those companies have reported, the this four stocks, with the exception of Google, have tended to react poorly to earnings with, uh, you know, overwhelmingly more down more often than they're up. Um, and then the market overall for the, for that week has also uh, shown you know pretty poor returns, so that that's one thing to be concerned about uh, heading into this week. The one caveat that we see is that normally leading into these weeks where all four of these companies have reported these you know these four mega caps, you've seen the market run up into these reports, and so you've seen the expectations bar pretty high. Right. This right. Uh, this quarter. Uh, we're seeing the S&P down 5% and the NASDAQ down 9%. So I think the expectations have become much lower this time around. Uh, so you, you may not see that type of negative reaction in the stocks as they report because they've already fallen pretty sharply as it is. You'd hope. And then you have the case of Netflix where in that, in that instance, the market activity was telling you, you know, the stock was going to continue to perform worse. But yes, to your point, Meta already down 45% since January. Uh, Netflix is now down 70% from its highs. Paul, anything you'd add about the market setup here? You know, we, we, the momentum has obviously been pretty poor um, there's a number of big picture and small pictures of factors you could reference. What are you going to most be watching for our next move here? You know, I think uh, as far as the bigger picture, it still remains the Fed. You said in the intro of the show that this is the fastest tightening cycle going back to the 1980s. Well, they've only raised 25 basis points so far. So it's almost the, you know, the fear of danger is more uh, frightening than the danger itself. Uh, so I, I think what you're going to see here is the market is you know sitting here thinking you know what is the fed going to do there's a, a whole lot of uncertainty and we're just you know left waiting in the lurch so to speak so I, I think what you really need to see is if the fed is going to come out and you know hike rates that get it get it over with rather than keeping the market in a state of uh, limbo here and you know wondering what are they going to do rather than you know just have them come out and do it just as a corollary imagine if in march of 2020 when COVID was first coming, the Fed was came out and said, you know, things are looking really bad. So over the next six months, we're going to lower rates down to zero. People thought, would have thought that was ludicrous. Uh, that, but you know, that's we're seeing almost the opposite here. The Fed keeps saying we're going to we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. But we're seeing the slow pace of the hikes come through. Yeah, we're just at the beginning stages. Paul, appreciate it very much. Thanks for your time. Paul Hickey from Bespoke. Let's turn now to the surging dollar, typically a headwind for the market. But my next guest also has some ways to profit from it. David Harden is the CEO and chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. David, let's just start. I mean, there, some of what has been going on with the dollar against the yen and against the Chinese currency even last week was pretty amazing. Now add in today the euro where $1.07 last I saw. 
I mean, we haven't talked about parity in years, and all of a sudden that's back in the conversation. And you know what? Just There's just not enough pressure on global rates that there is on the U.S. rates. And so as the Fed tightens, the dollar strengthens. And so you do need to look for areas to make money as the dollar goes up. And there's definitely some risk in your portfolio if you're not careful because your portfolio exposure to the dollar can definitely hurt you. You want to favor U.S. over international. You want to choose you know, domestic, smaller over larger. And look for things that have done or performed well with a strong dollar, like consumer staples and healthcare, even utilities. Well, you have names like Hershey and Kroger. Are these names that people can be comfortable in as, let's call them to some extent, currency plays, but also they do face such inflationary headwinds, don't they? There is some inflationary, especially you think about making chocolate right with Hershey. They're going to have some inflationary headwinds there, but they also... In, in a recession where a lot of people are talking about that big R word, hey, we eat a lot of chocolate. So Hershey's still a good play. They've done very, very well year to date. And the fact is, is that they have a lower of volatility risk compared to the market. They have really high quality earnings. So this is something that I would favor in the sense of a strong dollar. I just can't imagine. I mean, I take your point that, you know, if we're going to be hiking faster than everybody else. And we heard from Christine Lagarde in that interview with Sarah last week. She did not sound like she was all that hawkish at all. But so where's the euro going to go from here? You know, $1.05, $1.03, are we 99 cents? It's, it's hard to imagine that we could, that this move could keep going, you know, much further in the direction it's already gone. Well, the macroeconomics behind it, right, you still have the international companies still have war to deal with. They're having their own struggle with, um, you know, supply chains, et cetera. So international still has problems. And in the U.S., we're nowhere near. You just said earlier, we're at the start of the cycle with the Fed. So I think we're still raising rates and we're raising them. And our pressure here to raise is a lot more than international. So I just see the dollar increasing. Scary to say, yes, it's at two-year highs, but maybe we should see four-year or five-year highs. So I, I think the dollar continues to strengthen here. And you couple that with everything else going on in the market, maybe seven rate hikes, maybe 50 basis points, 75 basis points has been talked about. So you look at that and it's definitely time to put managing risk into your portfolio. You cannot throw that at the wind when you have all of these hikes out there and all of these macro winds blowing in the direction of a higher dollar and more volatility to come. Yeah. Or continue. If you're right, and this, you know, it makes me think back to kind of the late 90s, you know, the Asian currency crises, things like that, where you wonder, you know, about the next round effects it could have. Maybe it'll all be orderly and maybe it'll all be fine. Let me quickly switch gears before I let you go and ask you, at a time when IBM was actually a rare bright spot last week, especially on that Netflix earnings day, why are you a seller of IBM here? Well, if you look back in IBM's history, they've always struggled with with determining when to hedge and how to hedge the dollars coming back in from their international operations. And so if there's a, a strong dollar, IBM has struggled with converting that over and they've had a hard time with their earnings in the past. So maybe that's better, but I'm very cautious when it comes to a strong dollar and IBM. And I've seen that correlation many, many times, lived through it many times. So for me right now, I'm, I'm a seller on IBM. I'd rather have them prove to me that they can handle a strong dollar. Very, very interesting. David, thank you so much.
David Harden with Summit Global Investments. All right, the final piece of this, crude oil plunging. You might say, well, it's a currency effect. COVID is spreading in China, including to the capital city of Beijing. The city now expanding testing requirements to the entire city, even as it continues to keep much of Shanghai under an intense lockdown. Let's get to Brian Sullivan with the latest. And Brian, this in a way would be a silver lining for global markets if it weren't also raising fears of a global slowdown. Oh, I don't know about that, Kelly. I mean, I'll push back a little bit and say that energy was one of the only sectors that was working this year. It was kind of the lone bright spot in an otherwise down market. Now you've got oil stocks getting hammered today, and they're down well off their highs. Baker Hughes is down 21% from its recent high. A number of the former leaders this year, the Halliburton's, Schlumberger's, bigger cap stocks, they're down 10 to 15% off their recent highs. So the leadership group, now appears, at least in the last few days, Kelly, and this could change, the leadership group appears to have disintegrated. So I'm not really sure where money goes. It's going to the dollar. We know that. It's probably going to go to government bonds. We're seeing that again as yields actually come back down. Listen, Beijing and Shanghai combined are about 45 to 50 million people. You've got a couple of other cities with semi-lockdowns. So just doing rough math, because you can't get a lot of really good data out of China, right? It's probably likely that about 5 to 7% of the Chinese population is under some kind of lockdown. China uses 14 million barrels of oil per day, about 14%. The math is easy because we use about 100 million. So just do that math and say, okay, if that's the case, maybe oil usage will get reduced by, what, 4 to 6% per day in China. Again, extremely rough Sullivan back of the envelope math. But if you look at those kind of numbers... The market has come down far more. Our March 8th high was at 129 bucks. That just ticked one, of course, inside the market, Kelly. So we're down 25% in crude oil from our intraday high tick wow. on March 8th to now, all while U.S. demand continues to rise. So it's an interesting mix, but you're right, the dollar has an impact as well. well and I guess, Brian, that's my point is, I, I, in some ways, this is still... A positive development in the sense that if every source of global demand were, were you know, firing on all cylinders right now, the energy price, the oil price could easily be back up to that 130 area that we tested before all this. And, you know, it might be good for energy stocks in the near term, but at some point you're talking about the, that being a major, major problem. At some point, to your point, and Farmer Jim said this in halftime, China will reopen. They have an election coming up later on this year. Hmm. I'll just give you an anecdote. I've got friends I, I will ping on Signal and other secure messaging platforms. I know somebody in China who is trying to catch a pigeon on their apartment windowsill because they had no food. Oh. That's a true story. Because they're trying to figure out how to catch a bird because they can't leave the building. They're putting fences up around some of these buildings. I think the point is, even the Chinese public, and I'm not making a political statement here, but I mean, people are running out of food. They're going to get angry. Yeah. At some point, China is going to have to reopen. If you look at maps of ships, you can't even see the number of ships off the coast of Guangdong and Shenzhen because there's so many, they just blend into one giant blob on the computer screen. Some point when that does reopen, Kelly, assuming that Europe does not go into its own severe recession or even worse, because of what's happening with Putin's war in Ukraine, to your point, maybe that demand will again spike, but yeah. it's not now. And a lot of these oil ETFs are down 15 percent. 
in a matter of days. Yeah, I hate Heck to call of a it time. China locking down. Exactly. I was going to say, hate to call it a lose lose, but it's kind of how it feels right now. It's you know either China's in the horrible situation you describe and energy is doing terribly, or they're in a great situation reopening. That's you know good thing in the long run, and then energy spikes. You know, and it's 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 just that's that's where we are post pandemic. That is the tightness uh, of the supply chain we've been talking about. Brian, thank you. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate it, Brian Sullivan, with the latest. Coming up, the Fed's conundrum. They are moving at the fastest pace in 40 years, just as the market has lost its footing and fears ramp up about the global economy. Now, which of these factors from the stock sell-off to the surging dollar could prompt them to rethink their plans? Plus, we're kicking off the busiest week of earnings season with a look at GE, 3M, and Whirlpool. All three of these stocks are down at least 25% from their highs. We have the action, the story, and the trades ahead. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets. There it is. The Nasdaq has gone positive. Crisis over. Uh, the Russell earlier sinking to a new 52-week low, but it is only down a tenth of a percent right now. The S&P continues to be the laggard with a 0.6% decline. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Fed is in the very early stages of a tightening cycle that looks to be its fastest in 40 years since Paul Volcker was chair. Now it does so into a wobbly stock market and with an already surging U.S. dollar. Steve Liesman is here with the latest. Steve? Yeah, uh, Kelly, markets are now pricing in an enormous amount of Fed tightening this year, including multiple 50 basis point rate hikes and a policy rate by year end that seeks to actively restrain growth, that is, go above neutral. The problem is a lot of uncertainty out there about whether even this new hawkish outlook will be sufficient to restrain inflation. Goldman Sachs saying in a recent report, the economy may need another 50 to 100 basis points of tightening more than the high number they've already baked in. Quote, the Fed needs to slow GDP growth about one and a, one and a half to one percentage point more than our below consensus 22 forecast of 1.9 percent. We're living a higher terminal funds rate than our baseline forecast of three to three and a quarter percent. So 50 or 100 above that in some way. The funds rate pricing sees the Fed going now from 0.38 to 187 by August to 270 by December or above the Fed's neutral estimate. It then goes further 
with the market pricing in a peak or terminal rate right now of 3.34% by December 2023. Okay, how do you get there? <clears throat> Basically, the market has priced in 50 basis point rate hikes over the next three meetings with some chance. It's a lot lower now than it was Friday, but still a chance of 175 base point hike built in. After that, 325 base point rate hikes with some chance of a single 50 base point hike built in. So some potential really aggressive pricing out there. Now, the expected rise in rates, 2.7 percentage points in all, will be the fastest in a single year since the 1980s. If the inflation rate doesn't show signs of improvement, the Fed could go faster still, Kelly. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Steve Leisman, is the Fed about to make a historic policy mistake or was the mistake already committed? And what should investors do now? Let's turn to Peter Bookvar. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, it's good to see you. And this latest wrinkle on, on what's going to happen with China's economy rather complicates the picture, doesn't it? Hi, Kelly. Uh, for sure. And, and one thing that, that Steve left out is the Fed is also going to be initiating a quantitative tightening going from zero to 95 billion in three months versus the zero to 50 billion over 12 months in the previous QT. So it is a double barreled form of tightening that is going to impact not just the economy, but also markets. But to your point on China, yes, it mucks up their entire analysis. But on the other side, it also further strains the supply chains, which then keeps inflation elevated, which then forces them to continue to tighten. True. So it, it's a no-win situation. Uh, and it's just a question of how much pain will they tolerate as they work their way through this tightening cycle. You are very good at seeing kind of the the global linkages uh, with the financial system. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the U.S. dollar here. It's on a historic move. What happens next? Well, it is a great question because the dollar has mostly been strong against the euro, the yen, and the pound. And only recently against the yuan, but the commodity currencies up until the last couple of days have traded great against the dollar. Hmm. Brazilian real, Mexican peso, South African rands, even the Australian and Canadian dollar be commodity currencies. So it does, in, in the aggregate and on paper, squeeze global liquidity. But I do want to differentiate because it's very easy to see the dollars up or the dollars down. The dollar's really only been mostly strong against some currencies and not so much against others. Great point. Does the fact that those currencies represent most of global GDP have any impact? Meaning, you know, so if we have a situation where the euro, I don't know where you think it's going from here, but we're so low that, I, I mean, do these moves keep going or not? The Japanese yen, we talked about this you know, that their policy is, is basically to try to keep pushing it lower uh, in order to achieve some of their macro goals. The Chinese currency collapsing because of everything that's going on. So can this move continue after we've already gotten to, to such what seem like kind of extreme levels? To me, the currency cross rate that everyone has to be watching is the dollar yen because of the pronounced impact of a potential change in policy. The Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance have two choices. They continue with yield curve control, and the yen continues to weaken, and inflation becomes a problem there, particularly on the energy side, since they import most of those needs, or they widen the, the yield curve control band to maybe 50 basis points or more, and then that itself creates major reverberations through the world's bond markets. Right. It, it is a very difficult question that they're gonna have to answer, 
but they're reaching a point where they're going to have to make a decision. And that's the cross rate that I wake up every day wondering where it's trading. And the end's about at a 20-year low against the dollar. And yet, and I'm, I'm just got to squeeze this in and then we have to go, but the, just this morning, Nikkei is reporting that Japanese policymakers are considering inflation relief measures like gasoline subsidies. Why don't they just abandon yield curve control? Wouldn't that accomplish their goals without, you know, tempting the markets? Well, that and also abandon this 2% inflation rate because be careful of what they wish for. They're already showing that, yeah, if we got to 2% inflation, we have a problem. So it, it, it gets into why are we raising the cost of living in everybody if we're, then we're just going to shove them money to handle that rising cost of living. Right. No, this has been the Peter Bookvar line for like 20 years. So I, I appreciate that we're getting a real world uh, example of, uh, of the consequences. Peter, we will leave it there for now. Appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Peter Bookvar with Bleakley Thanks, Advisory Jonathan. Group. Biotech is one of the only groups in the green today. The XBI ETF is up about 2%, uh, about 1% right now after falling 9% last week. Meg Terrell is here with some of the names on the move. It is about 2%, Meg. My eyes are just failing me. <laughs> I hear you, Kelly. Well, it's really interesting. If you look at biotech today, the XBI is up, but the IBB is not sharing in the same gains. And so what you're seeing is that the market likes certain biotechs today, but not all biotechs. The IBB is more driven by the larger cap names, whereas the XBI is more driven by small and midsize biotech names. And that's really what you're seeing the strength in today. Uh, Jared Holtz at Oppenheimer points out that this is the second day in a row that the XBI has outperformed the broader market market. And it's been a group that has been incredibly beaten down over the last few months and really over the last year. And there are a couple of things that are driving sentiment here. The main thing might actually be a stock that's really not driving the XBI itself, but that is driving sentiment for these kinds of companies. It's a, co a stock called Encarta, a company called Encarta. They had some very positive phase one, very early clinical trial news in blood cancers today. That stock has doubled, as you can see. It's still a small market cap company, about $500 million. But that just kind of driving positive sentiment in biotech that really needed it uh, more overall. But beyond that, you can see stocks like Moderna, BioNTech, both up around 6%. Intellia, which is working in CRISPR gene editing, up 4% there. Uh, so this really kind of a positive day for biotech investors who've been waiting for it. The XBI year-to-date down almost 30%. Kelly? Meg, thank you very much, our Meg Terrell. Still ahead, is it actually happening? The latest on Musk's potential takeover of Twitter with the shares popping about 5.5% right now. Uh, 51.50, so they're still $3 below the deal price. Could the deal get done by the end of the day, if not sooner? While we're on the subject, the potential takeover is pressuring shares of Digital World Acquisition Corp. This SPAC at one point wanted to take Truth Social, the Donald Trump platform, public, but doubts have risen over whether that deal will actually take place now. DWAC is down more than 16%. And as we head to break, here's another check on the Dow heat map. A few more names clicking into the green, about seven of them. Verizon, Chevron, and Nike are meanwhile the worst performers. We're back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, everybody. A huge turnaround in markets early this afternoon. The Dow was down as many as 488 points. We're now down 156, the S&P down 30. The Nasdaq is now positive by 17 points. Every sector's in the red except for communication services, as you might have guessed. It's up fractionally today, but it's still the worst sector from the highs, down nearly 30%. All of these components of it are falling to new 52-week lows today, at least uh, earlier on. Netflix, 70% off its record high. Match hitting another record low today. Meta, WBD, Charter, we're talking about gains of 40 to 50 percent. And if we had room for one more logo over here, Disney would be the name. Disney is down 38 percent from its recent highs. So this is, group has led us lower. Now, at least today, this afternoon, Tyler, it is leading us back to the upside. Tyler Matheson now with our CNBC News update. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. A New York judge has found former President Donald Trump in contempt of court. The judge says Trump has failed to turn over documents demanded in a subpoena for a civil probe into Trump's business practices. And uh, this judge is fining Trump $10,000 a day. A lawyer from Mr. Trump calls the contempt motion inappropriate and misleading. Meantime, in Virginia, lawyers have finished their cross-examination of Johnny Depp in his libel case against ex-wife Amber Heard. Jurors heard audio recordings of Depp warning there would be a bloodbath if their arguments were allowed to escalate. Depp winced while the clips were played. Heard appeared to fight back tears. On the news tonight with Shep Smith, a full wrap-up of Depp's testimony and what's next at the trial. That is tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Japan, a woman believed to be the oldest living human being has died. Kane Tanaka was 119 years old, born the same years as the Wright brothers first took to the sky. Tanaka was known for her fondness of chocolate and fizzy drinks. Her reported cause of death old age. <laughs> Kelly, back to you. Yeah, it's always when they say, you know, hard Busy problems with this. and chocolate. <laughs> Love it. I think that's our, uh, our trade of the day as well. Yep. Tyler, thank you very Thanks. much. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, GE, 3M, and Whirlpool are all on deck with results, and all three are lower this year with Whirlpool seeing the biggest declines. They all have similar headwinds too, cost inflation and supply chain issues. But could a travel resurgence give GE a meaningful boost? We have the key things to watch for all three next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. The busiest week of earnings season. This is it. It's officially underway. That means it's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange. We'll give you the story, the action, and the trade. And we're going to do three kind of industrial bellwethers who are set to report results this week. Let's start with General Electric. They're before the bell tomorrow. Street's looking for some aviation strength. You got that air travel rebound. Healthcare sales, meanwhile, expected to fall. Seema Modi has the story on GE for us today. And Oppenheimer Managing Director Ari Wald joins us with our trades. Welcome, guys. Seema, what are you watching? Kelly, well, it will be aviation that makes up about 40% of General Electric's business. CEO Larry Culp will likely convey a rather optimistic outlook around travel, pointing to TSA trends and how that's feeding through to aviation, its aftermarket repairs business, and that all-important leap engine. Uh, we're expecting aviation sales of $5.6 billion versus the $5 billion it saw in the same quarter a year ago. The question is whether the strength in this business can offset the ongoing troubles it's seeing in renewables after a competitor, Siemens Energy, just last week uh, conveyed to Wall Street a less optimistic outlook for renewable energy. So that will be a key focus. Options market is something that I like to keep 
keep an eye on, seeing a 5% move in GE to the upside or downside once the company reports earnings tomorrow morning. Oh, Kel. All right. Ari Wald, are you a buyer of GE? Kelly Evans, I am not a buyer of GE. <laughs> I think this is one that continues to trade lower with cyclicals and really stocks broadly through the summer until our market bottom checklist is complete. Uh, and so when, if you look at the chart of GE, what stands out to us is that through a, a topping pattern through most of 2021, broke down in the November, uh, December sell-off, more or less has been consolidating sideways year to date. Now we are seeing signs uh, of the stock turning lower again uh, from its falling 200-day average. I think that larger top is resuming lower. That looks pretty menacing to us. So for us, the trade, uh, keep an eye on the 50-day average. If you were to get a, a pop to the upside, I think you want to sell strength into the 50-day average at around $93 in anticipation for, over the coming weeks to months, a drop below the recent March low at $85. I think new lows are in uh, are coming up here. And glancing through here, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you don't like uh, GE. You don't look like you like 3M that much. You know, what would you, we've had people coming on the show and talking about industrials being the place to be for either the tightening cycle or because it's been kind of under the radar. What would you say to those who might be thinking about adding industrials into their portfolio more broadly? Yeah, and, and I think I was one at one point that highlighted a study showing that industrials historically do quite well uh, at the start of a, of a tightening cycle, six months after the, the, the Fed hikes rates, it's got the best hit rate. Uh, just within the sector, there's there's some stocks that look better than others, and these names that we've, we've gone over aren't those names. Unfortunately, when internal breadth narrows, there's just really not a very long list of stocks to um, to highlight favorably from a technical basis. Uh, so even with industrial, there's some mid-cap names we can point to, some so, some that are dedicated in the water field, Zern Water Solutions, and, and, and a few other mid-cap machinery names, Deer perhaps. But in general, we are have a market view of the industrial sector, given that mixed bag of stocks uh, underneath the surface. Very, very interesting. So it, so the in, in some ways, the highest profile ones are the most problematic. Stay right there, Seema. Uh, let's pivot and talk about 3M, see what we're looking for. Uh, this company has beaten earnings in the four straight quarters. They've got some legal headwinds, though, and the shares are down 17% this year. Yeah, it's really underperformed its peers, Kelly. Uh, in fact, RBC Capital calls it its least favorite pick within the industrial sector. Uh, $2.31 estimate, that's a 16% decline compared to the same time a year ago. Part of the issue is that ongoing PFAS legal liability, which Wall Street just sees as sort of a, a less thing that they can qualify or, or quantify, excuse me. The other thing is inflation. Of all the industrials, this is a very uniquely diversified name that makes everything from scotch tape to auto components. And a lot of its products are made out of plastic, which is derived from oil. We know the price of oil has gone up. So how it's passing on that cost to its customers uh, will be a key focus tomorrow. And uh, Ari, this is one, again, not liking the chart action. But if I heard you right a moment ago, you said in industrials, you know, maybe you're sort of like a market neutral on them, but that you like, did I hear water names? Deer, obviously, we've heard and SEMA has highlighted its strength. But um, where else should people go in the space if they don't want to go here? Well, yeah, 3M, not one of those spots. Uh, also, in, in uh, a large industrial conglomerate, it's been trying to move sideways in recent weeks. Uh, we side with, again, the, the bearish trend uh, that the week tend to get weaker when the market tide recedes. Keep an eye on that February gap. Comes in at 153. Again, if they were going to pop 
post earnings, uh, very often those gaps become resistance on the way back up. But uh, again, with the focus on stock selection, it's a lot of these mid-cap names. They're not your bellwethers. McGrath, Rentcorp breaking out to the upside. It's rated outperform uh, at Oppenheimer. So there's there's just um, there's some names out there. There's just uh, you, you really got a key uh, on individual stock selection. I think for exposure. Uh, to that group. Yeah, it's a very different market when we go from talking about Fang for a decade to talking about what you always call the McWright, the what corp? McGrath, Repcorp, uh, ticker MGRC. MGRC. They get their day in the sun, don't they? Uh, Ari, we appreciate it. Seema, all right, we'll let you go. We'll turn to Dom Chu to hit Whirlpool, which reports its first quarter results after the bell today. It's actually trading higher today, although it's down 20% on the years. That home improvement boom starts to cool off. Dom, what else are we watching here? So, I mean, Kelly, Whirlpool is an industrial story, kind of, right? They do make durable goods. But officially, we are, of course, talking about one of those barometers of consumer demand for appliances and larger purchases. So technically, it's categorized as a consumer discretionary stock. To that end, investors will be seeking some kind of insight, some kind of commentary into the current macroeconomic environment. Now, from a headline standpoint, consensus analyst estimates are for $5.36 a share, revenues of about $5.3 billion. Now, for Whirlpool, like a lot of those other companies that you mentioned, Kelly, we are talking about a company that's had to deal with not just the supply chain issues globally, but also the sharp rise in input costs, raw materials. So look for any kind of an update from management about how long they think those headwinds will last. They did say they they saw them persisting last quarter. This is also about how strong the global consumer is. Whirlpool could give us another anecdotal point about whether rising prices are starting to crimp consumer demand. With all that in mind, guys, here's what the trading action could look like. Whirlpool may have may move up or down or it has in the past by an average of 3.3 percent call it thereabouts in each of the last eight quarters. Now, current options prices would indicate what could be a 6 percent move in either direction following those results. So, Kelly, Ari, traders are looking at possibly close to double the recent volatility around earnings reports. That stock has traded lower, by the way, five of the last eight reports, guys. Yeah, this all tells me all I need to know about which way Ari's going on this one. It's down 20%. It's been trading down on results, Ari. You're, you're staying away, aren't you? Yeah, this is, um, it, perhaps we can argue it's getting too late to sell. I, I guess for us, it's it's too early to buy as well. Hmm. Uh, consumer, this, this falls into the consumer discretionary sector in terms of uh, GICS classification. It, it was really starting to break down in January when we downgraded consumer discretionary to underweight. Uh, so now it's really just waiting for the base to, to develop, be patient. But as it stands, here's a stock that's below all of its moving averages. And for all these reasons, we would rather sell strength rather than buy weakness. Keep an eye on the 50-day average. If you were to get a positive surprise post earnings, that 50-day comes in at 180, uh, 187, and we would be looking to sell strength into that 187 resistance. Ari, let's average. close on a buy recommendation if you have one uh, for investors. And your pick, any sector, any name, anything that you're excited about this week? I put him on a rowboat. Yeah, um, I'm going to go over a lot of the names we've been talking about on, on this show, Kelly. Um, you know, first off, stick with low volatility exposure. I think through the summer that thematically is, is how you want to have your portfolio positioned. But one name as the stock, as the market selling off here, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. We've, were, we've been on here talking about this multi-year breakout and trend. Well, now the stock is correcting and it's correcting into that breakout point. It's correcting into its moving averages. In a bullish trend, you want to buy weakness, and now you have a near-term opportunity 
to buy emerging long-term strength in Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Did not see that coming. See, that's why I love talking to you. Ari, really appreciate it. Great to have you, Ari Wall. Dom, thank you so much. Our Dom Chu watching those results for us today. Still ahead, shares of Coca-Cola unable to hold on to their pre-session trading gains despite putting up some strong quarterly results. Shares are still higher fractionally, but we'll hear from the CEO himself about the headwinds and tailwinds they are expecting this year. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Time for some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Today's chart is Coca-Cola hitting a new all-time high this morning, hanging on to gains just fractionally. Uh, They beat estimates on their earnings, reiterated their full-year outlook. Still, the CEO is warning of storm clouds on the horizon. In fact, here's what he said about Coke's business in China on Squawk on the Street. We started very strongly in January with Chinese New Year, and then by the time we got to, to March, it was it was negative, uh, and the quarter ended negative. Uh, strong lockdowns in Shanghai. Uh, in simple terms, it looks very much uh, as though uh, we're back in April 2020 in terms of consumer mobility, uh, lack of uh, lack of uh, openness of a lot of the channels, uh, and having complications, uh, uh, you know, with the supply chain. April 2020, yikes. Still, Quincy said they don't expect things to be as dramatic as in those early months of the pandemic. Coke on its six-week winning streak shares up 13%. Coming up, shares of Gap higher today after sinking last week when it cut its sales and growth outlook and announced the departure of a key executive. But one analyst says now is the time to scoop up the shares. Why, he says, the reward is greater than the risk. Next. It has been a rough year for retail and teen apparel in general, with Urban Outfitters down 19 percent, American Eagle down 38 percent, and the gap dropping 31 percent. It's taking a big hit on Friday as well after cutting sales and its growth outlook and announcing the CEO of Old Navy is stepping down. One analyst says now is the time to buy the dip. Joining me is Bob Durbel, Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Guggenheim. It's good to see you, Bob. Why gap? Um, hi, Kelly. Um, I think generally... We're just opportunistic on the price here. We think that this price is discounting a lot of different optionality for for the company. And we feel like they've got some valuable assets in the portfolio. So, you know, we feel like this is the right level to to be buying the shares. Sale or spinoff of Athleta. And what do you think happens with the shares or with the shareholder value broadly that would create? I mean, we've done a lot of numbers around it. I think one of the things that's interesting on Gap Inc. generally is we would welcome much more disclosure and, you know, Athleta being one of those. But when you look at the valuation, you know, four and a half billion for the equity, I would almost argue that Athleta could be that value in itself. So if you do separate Athleta from the other pieces, you still have some other potentially very valuable assets in this business. Reminds me a little bit of like a Ferrari uh, Fiat kind of thing. Um, Athleta, obviously a strong point. What's happened at Old Navy? How long ago do we have to rewind the clock to where that story went wrong? Um, I, mean, I think within the last few quarters, the supply chain was, has been challenging for the company, you know, including Old Navy. And I think that you know, there was some significant air freight incurred over the last several quarters. And I think the discounting is there. The discounting is there. I always like to give them a second just to see if the shot will come back up. Uh, Our thanks to Bob Durbel again. Guggenheim upgrading gap from neutral to a buy, thinking the shares could double from here. 
Up next, shares of Twitter are up nearly 30% since Elon Musk disclosed his stake three weeks ago, and they're up 60% from their lows. The latest in the saga and why an agreement could be reached any moment now. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. It's the saga du jour. Twitter shares climbing nearly 30% since Musk first disclosed his stake earlier this month. And an agreement on Elon Musk's takeover bid could be reached any moment now, according to reports. Julia Borson here with the very latest. The shares, Julia, still about $3 below the potential sale price. Yes, but up about 5% today on those reports that Twitter is nearing a deal with Elon Musk, with multiple reports that that deal could be announced after the market closed today after 4 p.m. Eastern. Now, a source close to the situation tells me that the board did meet yesterday to discuss Musk's offer, taking it far more seriously now that he has secured $46.5 billion in financing. And then after that, Twitter's board reportedly negotiated with Musk late into the night yesterday. And of course, even uh, now, there are still plenty of unknowns. If Twitter secures a go shop provision, that would allow it to to solicit bids from other potential buyers once a deal is signed. And it's still unclear what the breakup fee would be if a deal is signed and then falls apart. Now, though a deal is far from certain, the seriousness of these negotiations and the fact that we feel like we're so close to a deal, it is a meaningful milestone for the company, Wedbush analyst Dan Ives, it says, quote, the street will read this news today as the beginning of the end for Twitter is a public company with Musk likely now on a path to acquire the company unless a second bidder comes into the misc. Now, we have no comment from Twitter today, but with the company set to report its results on Thursday, that company's earnings per share are projected to decline by 83%. So the board could be rushing to announce something before those results are out. Kelly? So what does this all mean, Julia? That And again, I guess unless his bid were hostile, it wouldn't trigger the poison pill off, obviously. So it could just be the price that he initially named. Where are the other suitors? Their, their silence speaks volumes. Well, yeah, that's the question. So yes, yeah, so now the fact that he is negotiating directly with the board, that means that the poison pill is probably not going to come into play. This is what the board wanted, which was the ability to sit down and negotiate directly with Musk. I do think that the other suitors are the wild card here. I mean, there has been some speculation that the board has been out there looking for other potential buyers. Um, but it, that's the real question here is, you know, are they going to sign a deal? And then would they have the option to do a go shop and see if anyone else could come in? But there's the question of the business model here. I mean, we have to remember that Elon Musk is not focused on Twitter as a business. He is focused it as, on it as a platform for free speech. And there are questions about um, what the potential growth opportunities are for this business and how many people actually want to use the platform and how much money you can make off of them. Roughly, Julia, do you know how long if they announce this deal and there is some kind of go shop period? Are we talking about a potential three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks of uncertainty? Oh, 
I, I, I don't know, Kelly. Um, this, I mean, this process could be announced very quickly. I mean, we could hear an announcement soon, but I'm not sure how long that could actually drag out. Um, but I, you also have to wonder, you know, if there were other bidders, would we have already heard about that? Exactly. You know, would they already be out there? Would Twitter be in talks with those other bidders? Um, not necessarily the kind of thing where someone's going to decide two weeks from now, oh, gosh, I really see right. the opportunity <laughs> in, in Twitter. But that said, nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. That is also true. Uh, Julia, we'll leave it there for now. Thank Thank you, Julia Borson. Again, we could get news any moment before the close or soon thereafter. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. John Ford sits down with NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong and ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott on the future of AI, live from ServiceNow's Knowledge 2024 conference in Vegas. Closing bell overtime, today for Eastern, CNBC.